In Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Join us in this conversation as we discuss following Jesus, leadership, and doing life with others. Welcome to the 419 Disciple Makers Podcast. Hello and welcome back to 419 Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm so glad you decided to climb aboard today as we are we're in the middle of a series where we're looking at the eight things that Jesus did in discipling those 12 that you and I can do today. Uh, we can employ these uh, techniques, these methods that he used to be the disciple makers that he's called us to be. I don't know how you found your way to this podcast or if you've been listening for a long time, but really glad about today because we're going to be talking about this principle called demonstration. Now, in Robert Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, which is a book I, I don't know how many times I've read it, but I use it with all my groups, especially in kind of a introductory or maybe mid-course way, just to introduce them to the methods of Jesus's model of disciple-making. And the first method, uh, or the first principle that he uses is selection. He selected the men he was going to disciple. Uh, the association, he was with them. He did life with them. Consecration, he set them apart and for this, this work. Uh, impartation was last week where we talk about the Holy Spirit being given as a gift to empower them. And then today we're talking about demonstration. In John 13, 15, he, he says, I've given you an example. He, he showed his disciples how to live. It wasn't all just words. And he saw that, uh, that his disciples learned uh, his way of living with God and man. I mean, that was what he wanted them to get. So he saw to it that they saw how he interacted with people. He, they saw how he interacted with the Father. And it wasn't just a, like a sermon all the time or just a podcast or, or anything like that. They were actually eyewitnesses to how he did life, and that's what really taught them as well. So if you go back into Scripture and look at it, there there are several things that the Lord demonstrated in training those 12 because they needed these basics, and so do we. We're not beyond them, of course. We are in the information age, but what he did with the 12 still work today. Uh, And so we also need to be teaching those that we're discipling uh, the power of these basics of the Christian faith by demonstrating them, not just by talking about them. One of those uh, foundational principles I think is important as a disciple-maker to share is he taught them how to pray. Now, a lot of times we'll pray in public or we'll pray with those in our group or we'll ask others to pray and we'll talk, we'll recite the Lord's Prayer, but prayer was such a foundational element that Jesus knew they had to get this, and they were going to get it through demonstration. But he didn't force the lesson on them. He just kept praying until the disciples got so hungry and so curious and so impressed that they asked him, hey, teach us how to do that. Teach us how to pray like you. And so we know right there in Scripture that he taught them what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, I think it's actually the disciples' prayer. You know the one, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Jesus taught them that because they asked him to. They were curious. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. He taught the disciples to pray this. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, if you want to get technical, is John 17. It's The whole chapter is red letters, and it's uh, the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for himself, and then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for his followers, which are us. And so the disciples' prayer or the Lord's Prayer, I'm not going to ask you to change the terminology on that, was really a demonstration, and that's the principle we're talking about today. 
And so he taught them how to pray in a simple way. And there's a format to the Lord's Prayer that we teach uh, our disciples how to pray in a simple way as well. Uh, there's many ways to do it. There's not a perfect way, but the way I like to teach is in a four-phase model that's based on the acronym PRAY, P-R-A-Y. And the first one is praise. Uh, we start off our prayer time with praise. Oh, God, thank you for who you are and what you've done, and you've always made a way, and your track record is perfect, and you love us, and you've made a way for us. I mean, just praising God for all the good things. And then I like to move down into repent. Lord, forgive me for the way I talked to my wife the other day, or the way I uh, responded to that person at work, or the, the things I've been thinking about or not thinking about. Repentance means to change your mind or change your thinking. And so as a part of my prayer, I want to confess those things and ask the Lord to forgive me for those things. The third component of pray, praise, repent, is ask. This is where I ask the Lord for the things I'm, I'm praying about or the needs that we have. And the Lord says you have not because you ask not. So in asking is an important part of prayer. The problem with that is, is that most people, their prayer is just a big ask. <laughs> I mean, it's just the whole prayer is, hey, dear Lord, uh, I need this, I need that, I need the other. And, and we kind of treat God like a cosmic vending machine, you know? We, we, we walk up and we put in our prayer request and then we push the button on what we want. And if it doesn't come out, you know, we kick the machine or rock it back and forth. But God is not a cosmic vending machine. God's not here to just uh, be a request uh, format for us. Uh, and so if you don't have some kind of a framework like the Lord's Prayer or this P-R-A-Y for, uh, simplicity, simple model, prayer life can be just a request. So if you'll notice in this one, ask doesn't come until the third component. And then finally is yield. You know, not my will, God, but your will be done. I'm asking for these things, but if you know it's not best, I want what you know is best. So we yield. This is just a, a simple way to pray. Um, but it wasn't but prayer was an indispensable part of the disciples training. I mean Jesus knew that unless they grasped the meaning of prayer and learned how to practice it with consistency that nothing would really ever come of their lives. So much of what God's will in the world is and for us is accomplished through our prayer life. Yet prayer becomes this mysterious thing that makes some so many people so uncomfortable. I'll give you another example about how I've used prayer in my discipleship groups is I ask people, and I do this in marriage counseling too, is about their prayer life with their spouse. And most people think, well, yeah, we pray sometimes, you know, pray uh, over the food or before we go on a long trip. But one of the things I like to ask people to do is to pray over your spouse daily. And praying over your spouse is different than praying for your spouse. Praying over your spouse is talking, so for instance, me and my wife, I'm talking to God about her and letting her listen into the conversation. Now, of course, this is not a time to, you know, <laughs> try to get her to do things I want her to do. Dear Lord, make her do this. No, it's, it's praising God, it's, it's repenting, it's asking, it's yielding about her. I'm talking to her Heavenly Father and letting her listen in on the conversation. And when I do that for her and she does that for me, it is such a bonding, powerful experience in marriage because prayer works. And the couple, this is the oldest cliche in the world, and you know what I'm about to say, so maybe I'll just let you mouth it with me. A couple that prays together, you know it, stays together. It's true. It's true. I've never had a couple come to me that was in deep, serious uh, conflict with each other that often and fervently prayed with and for and over each other. It just doesn't happen. 
So prayer in a marriage, prayer in disciple-making, all these things are incredibly important. That's one foundational principle that our disciples, that we need to be demonstrating for those that we're leading. The second is um, that Jesus taught them how to use Scripture. Now, that's a no-brainer, right? I mean, he was the truth, and he used, but he used Scripture in so many different conversations. I mean, did you know that there are at least 60 references to the Old Testament in his conversations with the 12 disciples alone? There's another 90 allusions to it in his speaking with other people, which tells us that in the conversations that Jesus had with the 12 and with others, he refers to Scripture over 156 times. Think about that. That's a lot of times. Now, he probably didn't always start them with, the Bible says, you know, <laughs> thus saith the Lord. He probably brought the principle in as Scripture, just as conversation. But he knew, he demonstrated this for his disciples. And what was he demonstrating? That the Word of God needs to be right on the tip of your tongue. The Word of God needs to be on your mind. All of this shows us that Scripture is something that is brought into our everyday lives, our conversations, our decisions, our interaction with others. And I think Scripture itself, uh, how to apply Scripture to our life and, and memorizing Scripture are necessary in our discipleship plans too. I mean, if it worked for Jesus, it'll probably work for us. So having your, your folks memorizing Scripture, uh, when someone shares a prayer request around a scenario, maybe ask somebody else in the group, so what Scripture comes to mind for you in this? It's a way to teach, it's a way, but it's a way to demonstrate uh, how Scripture is, is important in our lives. And a third principle that, that Jesus used in this was, was how to share the good news with the lost. He didn't just tell them how to do it and then told them they should do it. Jesus demonstrated how to do this. I mean, he did this by sharing a spiritual principle or by the, by the way he dealt with people in a loving way. Jesus shared the good news of God with people in very, very different types of contexts. And I don't think he looked back at the disciples and said, hey, watch this. <laughs> I think they just caught it by watching how he lived. Because, because here's, here's what's interesting. He never had to work up a teaching moment. It wasn't like he pounded the desk and said, okay, guys, class is in session now. No, he, never, the, he just took advantage of the moment that he found himself in, and he made this his teaching, and he made this so practical and realistic. Whatever the scene, whatever the moment. And most of the time, the disciples were absorbing this truth without even realizing they were being trained. <laughs> it's pretty phenomenal when you think about it. He didn't say, now, there'll be a test next Tuesday. No. I mean, the test was coming, of course, and it is for us too. But his teaching was so just a part of the way he lived his life because he demonstrated what he believed. How about you? The things you know about God and believe about God, do you find yourself demonstrating those to those that you're leading? I hope so. Because like in Jesus's model, the fourth one is his teaching was just so natural. His, the way he imparted and demonstrated truth just seemed so natural. He, he didn't let his methods interfere with his message. He was, Robert Coleman says, he was his method. He, he didn't make things confusing. He actually made confusing things simple. And that's the best way to teach, in my opinion. So his teachings and his demonstration of how to live, they didn't seem uh, gimmicky. Uh, they just seemed natural because it was. And his class was always in session, always. 
Let me give you an example. When Jesus was given the story of the sower, remember the he go, the guy seed for, uh, throws seed out and it lands on four different types of soils? Well, his disciples must have been nodding yes to all that with everybody else around. And then they pull him to the side later and they're going, what? <laughs> I love that about the disciples. They, they're like us. They sit and listen to these profound truths and they just nod yes to let, make sure everybody knows that they get it, but they really don't get it. And they pull him aside and they're like, what did you mean by that story? I mean, what does seed have to do with us? So Jesus actually spends three times the amount of time explaining it than when he originally shared it. I mean, sometimes he's creating curiosity, and that's the best way to share a truth. He was so vague in the way he taught it to the group that it was the curiosity and the questions later that made that truth become more profound. That's just a natural way to teach. Here's another example. After dealing with the rich young ruler, you know, the rich young ruler, I mean, he had, he had the three things that we all want, right? He had money, youth, and power. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm picturing him driving up in a Ferrari like my friend Michael Belk took some pictures of. This guy pulls up and Jesus is talking, you know, he asks Jesus this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what he had? He had money, he had looks and youth, he had power, but he knew he did not have eternal life. And he, Jesus, he talks to him. Jesus, of course, doesn't respond with information. He always responds with a question. And he asks him, he says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. And then he tells him to go sell everything he has. Now, the guy doesn't do it, and he goes away sad. Now, don't think that Jesus asked everybody to sell all they have. He really only asked this one guy. So he doesn't come up to everybody and say, follow me, and by the way, I want you to be broke. No, he did it with this guy because he knew this guy's God was his money. But what's important about this whole scene is that afterwards, Jesus says to his disciples, who would, who would, have, would have seen this whole thing unfold, he says to him, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he didn't say it's impossible, but the disciples were amazed at his words. And it actually led to another teaching moment explaining to his disciples why he dealt with them this way. You see, if you look at it, class was always in session. He was always demonstrating how to live for God, how to love other people. And everything he did and said was a demonstration of his personal reality. Jesus wasn't sharing things he didn't believe. He only shared that which he knew to be true. And his disciples were learning practically every day because they were seeing it. I mean, it is good to tell others what we believe, but it's way better to show them. And there's a verse that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, that actually keeps us from discipling, I think, because it scares us to death. Let me read it to you. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, that's an intimidating verse, because we want to tell everybody, hey, follow Jesus. But Paul says they can't see Jesus. They don't know how to follow Jesus. You need to follow Jesus and invite them to follow you. And that verse right there makes people shrink back because they think, well, I don't know how to perfectly live for Jesus. And so he's saying that your faith life is your exhibit. And the master's method was to speak truth and to demonstrate the truth of his life, but it makes us vulnerable. I mean, we, we, we're not perfect like Christ. But you know what? Neither was Paul. Paul wasn't deity. He was a human, 100% human. And yet he still says, hey, 
And I'll add a few words here, but follow me in all my imperfections and fears as I follow Christ. That demonstration is what gives those who follow us, who we are discipling, as the power to really live in in the real world that we live in. And so we need to let them see our weaknesses. Let them hear our confessions. Let them experience how we experience the healing and redemptive work of Christ. Take that scripture, that concept of demonstration today, put it in that verse of 1 Corinthians 11.1, and then ask yourself, am I willing to say to others, follow me as I follow Christ? Because if you think you've got to wait till you're perfect at it, listen, it's never going to happen. Paul wasn't perfect either. Jesus was, but Paul wasn't. And so I hope today brings a new angle to the way that Jesus discipled in this concept that we get from Dr. Robert Coleman on demonstration. And if you are looking for other tools or, or uh, curriculum or things or videos to share with, with the folks that you're discipling, go to 419disciplemakers.org. Um, you'll find them there. They're always free resources for you that you can apply to your life and then demonstrate to others how to pray, you know, how to use Scripture, how to share the good news with the lost, and how to teach naturally. Hey, also give us your feedback and invite a friend to listen to 419 because next week we're moving into the sixth principle that Jesus used with his 12, which is delegation. Yeah, now we get to give this stuff away. This is an exciting time for us. It's an exciting time, I know, in your life. And I just pray that God's moving you closer and closer to the very center of his will. God bless you and thank you. Thank you for joining us. For more information, check out our website, 419disciplemakers.org. Join us again next week as we continue our conversation on the 419 Disciple Makers podcast.